0: God still speaks. God still speaks. You know, I think we think about um, people like Abraham, that God spoke to and said, I want you to leave this land, and I'm going to bring you into this new place, and I will make your name great. Or we think about people like Moses, that God not only spoke to, but spoke through and said, You're going to be my mouthpiece, and you will go to the Pharaoh of Egypt, and you will say, let my people go. We think about David and Elijah and Elisha. We move to the New Testament, we think about people like Peter and Paul and the apostles, and we think about someone like Sam who shared this morning what a powerful story about what God is doing in India. We think God spoke to them, or God speaks to them. But if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we're not sure If God really wants to speak to us and through us, right here and right now. And perhaps now, more than any other time in my life, I believe that God does still speak. So as we prepare our hearts to hear from the Lord this morning, would you pray with me as we invite him? He is here as we open our hearts, just as Joe said, and we open our ears to hear what it is that he wants to speak today, right now. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so honored to be here standing before you, God, gathered with your people to hear from you this morning. So grateful for who you are in our lives, for the God that you are. And for the fact that you do still speak and that you want to speak to us and you want to speak through us, would you open us to the work of your Spirit and would we respond and listen? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my name is Christy Faye, as Mark said. I'm a part of the teaching team here at McDowell Mountain Community Church. And I really am, I mean it from the bottom of my heart, so honored uh, to be with you this morning. And if you know me, then you know I love a good story. So I'm going to tell a couple stories to you, and I hope that's, that's all right. Um, this first story begins in my kitchen. I'm a mom of four, and they are young, and they eat all the time. All the time. And so I'm in my kitchen constantly preparing meals, cleaning up meals, making snacks, packing lunches. It's just this endless revolving door of food preparation. And so I was in my kitchen one morning about to make some eggs. And um, around the corner comes my son, Wesley. I literally have the egg, like, right over the bowl. And I'm just ready to crack it. And he says, Mom, Mom, I want to do it. I'm like, oh, OK. <laughs> because I know what's going to happen I mean he's going to do his best and he's going to crack the egg and there's going to be yolk all over the counter and the floor and me and him and there's going to be shells and the scrambled eggs or omelet that I'm making and it's just like it'd be so much easier just to say no but he looks at me with those big eyes and I say yes of course you can crack the egg and so we make breakfast together And later that day, maybe it was the next day even, I felt God's spirit kind of pull me back to that moment. And it was quiet, but it was there because God spoke to me and he said, Christy, listen, you and me, just like you and Wesley. And it would be so much easier if you took that egg and you cracked it yourself and you made that omelet. There would have been no shells. It would have been much less messy. And in the same way, it would be so much less messy if I just fixed this broken world. I mean, we know it's broken. I could fix it really good. But that joy that you saw in his face and him knowing that he didn't just eat breakfast, but that he made it, I mean, that's, that's what I want for my dearly loved children. I want nothing more than for us together, these beings that I love so much, to enter into the world and to pick up the broken pieces of this broken world and to put them back together. I went, whoa, wow. It happened in, in a mundane moment in the middle of my kitchen. And God used that moment to birth something in me. I began to write. At nap time, the kids would go to sleep and I would begin to write. About a year and a half later, I had a six-week women's Bible study curriculum called Reclaimed, Uncovering Your Worth. And I am super proud to say that it's being published and released this October. And um, thank you. Thank you. Um, It's exciting. But that that all came from that one moment. I mean, God still speaks. I promise you, he does. The study itself is uh, based on five women that we find in the genealogy of Jesus uh, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. And um, you find them in the a genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And really, when you think about it, they don't belong there. I mean, they're in the middle of all of these men, and they're women. And if you know anything about women in that day and age and the time in which they existed, was very little respect for them. They didn't have very many rights. And yet there they are. And not only are they women, but they have some messed up stuff that went down in their lives. I mean, talk about baggage. These women have it. They have a lot of it. And so not only that, are they women, and then they have all these messed up stories as baggage, but they're not even Jewish. Matthew is a Jew. He's writing to the Jewish people. He's trying to prove that Jesus is the Messiah that they have been waiting for. And so why, why would these Gentile women be there? It fascinated me. And I learned real quick that they become proof It does not matter what happened in your past, the mistakes that you've made, whatever difficult circumstances you've had to journey through, but God wants to speak to you. He wants to speak through you. He wants to use you. He wants to allow you to partner with him in the picking up of the broken pieces of this world and putting them back together. They are proof of that. I think this morning we want to believe that that is true, don't we? I mean, I'd even say we need to believe that that is true. That the tough stuff of our life, our past mistakes, circumstances we're in right now, that they can be used for good, that they can be reclaimed. It's built into our psyche to long for this. It's why we watch shows like that are on HGTV, any fans of HGTV? Anyone? Can be honest, be honest. Yeah, those are great shows, right? Because what they do is they take this old, dilapidated, run-down, disgusting house and they transform it into something beautiful where we feel like I need to go to the, the store and buy that sink right now, it's that amazing. And they show us that before picture and that after picture and it's just so compelling. Now here's what's interesting. These shows follow the same pattern. Every single show is the same. Old house, transformed house. And yet we watch every episode. (laughs) It's so funny. And some of you men are thinking, yeah, those are great, but that's not my thing. Well, let's talk cars for a second. Let's talk cars. I want you to think about a 1969 Camaro. I did some research on this. And that's beat up, rusted out, just a shadow of its former self. And some talented person who knows a lot about cars comes in, spends hours working on it so that it can be restored, so it can be reclaimed, be like it was in its heyday. We I men, this like this gets you right, yeah. One last uh, scenario of how this kind of looks for us: um, 1970 NBA championships. So I have to confess, I messed this up first service. I was really excited. I was talking to Mike about this. I was like, this is what I want to talk about. Give me a sports thing. And so we, I was like, well, you need to talk about Willis Reed. I was like, cool. All right, tell me about Willis Reed. Plays for the Lakers is what I thought. He said, apparently he plays for the Knicks. So he plays for the Knicks. <laughs> I messed that up first service. Jeff Muckler came afterwards like, that was so good. But Willis Reed played for the Knicks. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> so Willis Reed plays for the Knicks. It's game five, and he gets injured. He's their star player. And everyone's like, it's over. Like, the series is done. What are, why are we even going to play any more games? And so, of course, the Knicks lose game six, and then comes game seven. Everyone's feeling defeated. And right before the game starts, right, the end of warm-ups, Willis Reed walks out, and the crowd goes crazy. They're like, oh, my gosh, there's a chance. And they win the game, and they win the series. It's like this a fantastic underdog story, that Hail Mary pass. And we, we love those stories. We want to hear those stories because there's something in us that needs to know that we're never too far gone, that there's still hope for us, that we can be the underdogs too, right? And so as we move through the morning, I want to talk about A guy that you'll probably know if you've been around church. I want to tell you a little piece of his story. And we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 16. You have your Bibles, you can open there, follow along on your phones. Um, And if not, there'll be some key scriptures up on the screen so you can follow along that way as well. But let me just give you a little bit of context and background before we dive right into this story. And that is this, that up until this time, um, the Israelites, who are God's people, have had these judges that have ruled over them and governed them. And that's been good and bad because there's been some great judges and then there's been some really bad ones. There's been some that listen to the Lord and some that don't. And so the Israelite people begin to sort of grumble against God. And they go to Samuel. And Samuel is the prophet at the time. He's the man of God. He kind of listens to God and then tries to communicate that to the people. So they go to him and they say, we just want a king. Like every single other nation has a king. Like why don't we have that? I'm sure glad we don't want what everyone else has nowadays. But back then they did. And so they said, we just want a king. And so Samuel goes to God, and God says, okay, that's, that's fine. Technically, I am their king, and they should submit and, and want to follow me, but because they don't do that real great, I'll let them have a king. And so they find this guy named Saul, and Saul is handsome, the scriptures tell us. It actually says he um, is heads and shoulders taller than everybody else. So, I mean, if you're going to look at a line, you're going to pick him out as, as what you think would be the next king. He just looks like a king. And so they, they get Saul, they anoint him, and he becomes king. For a while, this is good. Things go pretty well. He tries to listen to God and do what God asks him to do. And then to make a long story short, he goes a little crazy in the head. And it's time to move on. So that's kind of where we'll pick up our story in um, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16, verse 1. It says, God addressed Samuel. So how long are you going to mope over Saul? basically says, like, come on, like, let it go. we got to move on. This guy went a little crazy. It's time to anoint somebody else as king. And so he says to Samuel, I want you to go to Bethlehem. To go to Bethlehem, there's a man living there by the name of Jesse. Jesse has seven sons. Let me pause for a moment, and I just want you to imagine with me the amount of testosterone in that house. <laughs> I have three boys maybe four because my husband, and there is so much potty humor and wrestling, you don't even want to know, so I can't even fathom seven of them, but this man has seven sons. So Jesse, uh, he goes to meet, Samuel goes to meet Jesse, shows up in Bethlehem, and he kind of gathers the people together, and they're going to have sort of this worship service, kind of like what we're doing right now. So they're all there, and Samuel says, this, all right, it's time. I'm going to call Jesse's first son named Eliab forward. So he steps up. He's this big dude. He's pretty handsome, pretty strong. Kind of like, yep, that's the king. Check. And God says, no. Right? I mean, you know this story, right? He says, nope, sit down. So then the next son, the second son comes up. His name is Abinadab. And Again, very strong, very kingly looking, could be him, should be him. And God says, no, this isn't it. And they go down the line of the six sons. You're thinking, wait a minute, you said seven. I did. But they go down the line of the six sons, and God clearly says to Samuel, this isn't, this isn't it. None of these guys are it. So let's pick up in the text here in verse 11, because... Samuel turns to Jesse and says, are these all the sons that you have? Is this it? Because I, I know God told me it was going to be one of your sons. It says, there is still the youngest, Jesse answered. But he is tending the sheep. In the message it says, he's the runt. He's the runt. And he's just out tending the sheep. let's, Let's pause here. Let's park here for a second because his own father doesn't call him by name but assigns to him three distinct labels. He's the youngest. He's the rent. He's just a shepherd. He's just out tending the sheep. And so, therefore, he cannot be king. Here's the label. Doesn't even call him by name. Here's what he is. So therefore, there's just no shot in the world that this guy right here could ever be king. Can anyone go there with me this morning? Have you ever been called something other than your name for more of your life than you really want to admit? And it's not necessarily true of you, but it's been said and spoken over, you, over and over and over again. Has anyone ever labeled you something? And because of that, you said, yep, I'm just this, and so therefore I can't do this over here. There's just no way. We talk about that word label. I want to define it for you real quick, so we're on the same page here. So this is sort of my loose definition, but it's a word or phrase assigned to you that places you in a category or classification. A word or phrase assigned to you that places you in a category or or classification, often alluding to a state of permanence or rigidity. So basically, there's this idea that this is what you are and this is what you'll always be. So let's think about, and I'm going to call out a few of these labels. And perhaps some of these um, resonate with you. Um, Too young. Too young to do that. Too old to do that. Um, Overeducated. When Michael and I were early married, we lived in Los Angeles. Um, had big dreams didn't really happen for the way we thought they would so we started to look for jobs any job kind of desperate and Michael uh, went to the manager in Target and said I just I need a job can I push some carts can I do anything and he said Yeah actually you're overeducated what overeducated undereducated uh, not articulate enough not smart enough not attractive enough. Um, Too sensitive. Not sensitive enough. Too demanding. Not demanding enough. Too messed up. Your past, nope. Can't have you doing that. Or you're not messed up enough. There is not something in your past that qualifies you (laughs) to speak into this, right? I mean, there's a million and we could keep going. But what I'm going to have you do is we're going to take just the next 15, 20 seconds, and if you look inside your worship folder, you will see that there is a kind of a name tag or label that looks a little bit like this. If you have a pen, I'd love for you just to take a couple minutes just to think through maybe a word or a phrase that's been assigned to you, puts you in a category over the years, maybe even this morning. Just write that out. So just take a, a couple seconds to do that. Some of you, as you do this, are looking to the front and realizing I've put these on my shirt and going, oh my gosh, she's going to make us stick these on our shirt. (laughs) Can I erase this? I won't do that to you, I promise. That would be mean. But we'll talk about this in just a minute. So as you kind of think through that and write that out, let me just give you a few scenarios as to sort of how this might play out in everyday life. Okay? Maybe there's someone here and... um, You know, you've had a job for a long time. You've been able to make some money out. You've been pretty successful. You hate what you do. I mean, you provided for your family, which is honorable. It's a noble thing. It's a wonderful thing. But you're miserable, and and you don't want to be doing it anymore, and you feel like maybe this is the time. But your boss comes to you, and you're kind of telling him this, and he, he looks you in the eye, and he says, it's too late for you to do that. You don't have the credentials. You don't have the qualifications or the experience to, to change lines of work at this point in your career. I, I mean, that's harsh, but that happens, doesn't it? And so there's those labels that have been pushed or pressed upon you, just like David had. And you think, okay, well, I guess I am just that, and so I can't pursue this over here. I can't go out on my own. I can't move into this line of work because of that over there. Maybe this resonates with you. You grew up in a home in which your mom and dad weren't present. They weren't really great parents. Um, they were mean. They were abusive. They were emotionally bankrupt. And so you grew up in that environment. You began to think, well, if they're that way, I'm going to be that way. You begin to even label yourself and say, well, obviously, if they are emotionally bankrupt, then I'm also the same. And so you thought, I. I'm not going to pursue a family, and I maybe even won't have kids, and if I have them, they're going to be screwed up, period. Right? Maybe someone can, can say, yeah, I, I identify with that this morning. Let me get real personal, if that's okay with you. Talk about what I just did here. I, I struggle with this, too. I've labeled myself, and other people have labeled me things over the years as well. So here's, here's my personal scenario. Um, you're just a stay-at-home mom. So what business do you have writing a Bible study? Or you're not ordained. Do you have a seminary degree? What qualifies you to teach and write about the Bible? Or this? This is going to hurt a little bit. This is real personal. You're a woman. So what place do your gifts have here? Now, I've been lucky over the years to have some men and women alike say to me, yes, you've been gifted this way, and you better do it, or you're going to have to answer God for it. And so I've done it, and that's why I'm here. But there's been these labels on me too. Here's the question. It's a big question. It's one that we have to wrestle with, both you and I, together. And it's this. Who gave that person over there or this person right here the authority to determine the outcome of our lives? Let me say it again. Who gave that person over there or this person right here the authority to determine the outcome of our lives? Because last time I checked, that authority belonged to God and God alone. Amen? God alone. How to wrestle with that. I'm to go back to our story here for just a second. So imagine then that Samuel says, Jesse, do you have another son? And they go and they fetch David who's out in the fields tending to the sheep and he runs it and he's smelling like sheep. <laughs> he's all disheveled <laughs> and he shows up and Samuel looks at him and feels God say, yes, he's it. This is the one God wants to anoint as the next King over his people. God, man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. I mean, can you imagine just the surprise and the shock on everybody's faces? I mean, think about Jesse's face, think about his brother's faces, think about everybody there going, What? (laughs) Really? But I guarantee you that the most surprised and shocked person in that room right now, right then, was David. I guarantee it. He probably was going, Me? (laughs) You're talking about me? Because here's what happens with labels. After you wear them for a certain amount of time, you really start to believe them, and it becomes very difficult to separate them from who you truly are. I made the mistake once of washing one of my son's T-shirts that had a name tag on it from whatever. And I pulled it out of the washer and I went, what's that? And I went, oh my gosh, I didn't take that tag off. And it was so deeply embedded in the fabric, I couldn't get it off, no matter how hard I tried. I ruined the shirt. This is what happens. We wear those labels long enough. We get run through the machine, the washing machine, the dryer of life. And all of a sudden, this label is so deeply embedded into the fabric of who we are that we cannot separate it anymore. Can anyone identify with that? This is what David is walking through. Here's what I love about God I mean, David's over here. He's just the youngest. He's just the run. He's just a shepherd. He can't be king. And God says, Nope. <laughs> Actually, you're, you're supposed to be over here. I learned this word as I was researching uh, for the study, and it's called, it's peripeteia. Has anyone heard that word before, Peripeteia. Yeah, I had no idea what that meant until I was doing some research. And it's a literary device. And it's, uh, it's basically this, an unexpected or surprising turn of events in a literary work. Unexpected or surprising turn of events in a literary work. And God is full of peripateias, Right? I mean, no one thought David was going to have this turn in his life that would shift him from being a shepherd to being a king. God was like, yeah, he's the one. This is it. Think about the story of Rahab. She's a part of the study, and I've grown to really love her story so much. When we meet her in Joshua chapter 2, she's a harlot. She's a prostitute. And God decides to use her to hide the spies that he has sent to scope out the land that Joshua will then lead the people of God to take and to claim a 400 year old promise. And she is smack dab in the center of that story. So she once was a harlot and she becomes a heroine. And then get this this is so cool. This is a little tidbit from the study. But she marries one of the spies that she hid that day, he's an Israelite prince. And so she becomes a princess. She was a prostitute. And she becomes a princess. I mean, come on. That's just poetry. <laughs> You've got to love it. Peripatia. God can shift us from over here to over here. And some of you... This morning, you are thinking, Yes, I am tracking with you. I get this. This is what I am walking through right now. I feel like God speaking to me. He's trying to rip this label off me. He's trying to show me that that's not who I am, but that I can be this over here. And you are scared out of your mind. I mean, there were days I would sit down and write and go, What am I doing this for? This is crazy. I have no idea what I'm doing. It's scary. I know that's how David felt, right? I know it. How am I a shepherd, the youngest in my family, The how am I going to be king? Something happens that's really beautiful and profound at the end of this story. Let's just look at this verse here in uh, 13. 1 Samuel 16, 13. So it says, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. David, spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. That's what it says. That's awesome. That's how we do it. That's the question to the how. How do I do this? Well, we have the spirit of the Lord, and it comes upon us in power. And we're able to do things beyond what we ever expected that we could. So thankful for that. You can have the courage because you have the power of the spirit of the Lord to do it. Now, as we sort of move towards closing, I, um, I want to address a few of you in this room this morning who are theologians, who know about this story. You've read it before, you've heard it told a bunch of times. You know that David was 25 years old when he was anointed king, and it was about five or six years later that he became king. It's in the earlier part of his life. And you're thinking, Christy, I know you're talking about it's never too late, God can reclaim, God can redeem. We can be the underdogs, but I am twice or three times the age of David. So you really, you you don't get that. But David's life would tell us otherwise. We know his story, right? Years later, he's king. He's supposed to be out fighting a battle. He's not. He's at home. He's on the roof of the palace. He looks out. He sees Bathsheba. She's beautiful beyond words. He wants her. He takes her. She becomes pregnant. She is married to somebody else, married to a friend of his who happens to be out fighting in the war. And then he covers his tracks. He puts Uriah, her husband, out in the front lines to make sure that he is killed. He's an adulterer and he is a murderer. Talk about baggage. Talk about mistakes. He's a man after God's own heart and yet this happens to him. He makes these kinds of mistakes. And God says, it's not over yet. I'm going to reclaim you. God does not just reclaim us one time in our lives, and then it's over. It's a done deal. We don't have any second chances. God reclaims our lives over and over and over and over again and over again. Towards the end of his life, David has this dream. He has a vision, and he thinks about this idea that God, up until this point, his presence has been traveling. it has been kind of moving with his people in the Ark of the Covenant So he's sort of been nomadic. He hasn't really had a home. And he looks at his spacious and beautiful home that he's living in, and he thinks to himself, I have such a great place to be and a home to live in. But the spirit of the great Lord doesn't even have a place to, to dwell permanently. And so he feels like, I need to build a temple. I need to build a permanent home for the spirit of God to come and to dwell. He's really excited about this. And Nathan the prophet at the time hears about it. And he comes to him and says, listen, I've received this word from the Lord. And I have to be honest with you, God's so proud of you for this. This is such a great vision. This is such a great dream. It's very honorable. It's wonderful. But you're not going to be the one that does it. You're not going to be the one that builds it. You have blood on your hands. You've had to fight some wars. Some of that, not even your own fault. God called you to do these things. But you have blood in your hands. And I I need a man of peace to be the one that builds the the temple. It's God's home. But the good news is it's going to be your son. It's going to be your son Solomon who actually came out of that union between David and Bathsheba. Talk about redemption. It's going to be your son that builds this temple. I think that this is proof to us that God isn't only in the business of reclaiming individual lives, which he absolutely is, but he is in the business of reclaiming entire families. I mean, he can reclaim your genealogy. Can, But we have to do the hard work. we got to get rid of these labels. we got to get rid of that voice in our head that says, you're always going to be this. You're this, and it's never going to change. Because we got to have that parapet in our life that leads us over here and says, no, this is who you are. This is where you're supposed to go. And if we do that, I believe with my whole heart that it can change not just us, but it can change the lives of our children and their children and their children. And on, and on, and on. He can reclaim genealogies. It's such a beautiful thing. David, in response to what he's heard from the prophet Nathan, and he gets down on his knees and he begins to pray. And his prayer is so beautiful. I'm going to read it to you. It's in 2 Samuel 7, verse 18. It begins in, I love this. This is just David's response to what he's just heard. It says, King David went in and took his place before God and prayed, and he said, Who am I, my master God? And what is my family that you have brought me to this place in life? And maybe you identify with that. You say, I was there. I was so far gone. I had made such horrible mistakes, but God's brought me here. Or maybe you say, My grandfather, my great-grandfather, I know what they walked through, and it was awful, and it was horrible, but God brought them out of that, and because of that, I am living this life today. I am blessed because of their obedience. That's my story. I come from generations of women who worshiped and men who worshiped the Lord, and that's why I'm standing here today, because they allowed their genealogy to be reclaimed. So thankful for that. God, David continues to say, but there's nothing to compared to what's coming For you've also spoken of my family far into the future, given me a glimpse into tomorrow, my Master God. And what can I possibly say in the face of all of this? You know me, Master God, just as I am. You've done all this not because of who I am, but because of who you are, out of your very heart. And here's this, so beautiful. But you've let me in on it. We follow a God who lets us in on it, who says, come with me, let's crack some eggs. there's going to be some shells, but I wouldn't have it any other way. I love you that much. We are divinely called to partner with him, to pick up the pieces of this broken world, to put them back together. As the band comes, I want to challenge you with something. And... um." It is a challenge. It is going to take some courage. But if we want to live those kind of reclaimed lives, we got to deal with our labels. We've got to let God come in and say, you're not just a stay-at-home mom. You are a woman, and that is a good thing. You should use your gifts. And it doesn't matter that you're not fully qualified. I'm all the qualification that you'll ever need we got to let them do this. we got to let them rip it out. It's hurt. It hurts and it's hard. Sometimes it's deeply embedded. But if we do, I promise you that life will be different, not just for you, not easy, but different and good in a profound way, and not just for you, but for your family, for your children, for your grandchildren. So would you take those labels that you wrote on, I know this is asking a lot, but would you have the courage to maybe just fold it up? You don't necessarily need to show anyone this. This is a personal thing between you and the Lord. But would you be willing to fold it up? Would you be willing to take it to the cross? And would you be willing to pin it there? Sort of this outward expression of something that God's doing inwardly. And to say, I'm going to give this to you. It's yours. Done. Done letting somebody else. Done letting even myself. Determine the outcome of my life. I give authority back to you, where it belongs, Lord. Would You be willing to do that? You can also go to the back of the room and light a candle. Light is always represented the presence of the Lord. Maybe you're in this place where you've been called to walk this path and let go of what's behind you and press on to what's ahead of you, and scary. And you say, I need the power of the Spirit. I need that power that was unleashed that day that came upon David. I need that right now. Go light a candle and ask him for it. I guarantee you he'll give it to you. But none of this matters. Nothing that I've said that God's used me to say, nothing that Sam said, nothing that Joe sung, none of it matters if we don't respond, if we don't listen to his voice. Let's let him speak. Let's let him speak to us and let's let him speak through us. Do you pray with me? Jesus, I'm honored. I'm humbled to be here today to share this message. I'm merely the messenger. It's the message that's profound and powerful beyond words. That we are not what anyone else says we are. We're not even what we say we are. We are what you say we are. We give you our lives we ask you to reclaim them we give you the authority to do what you want to speak over us what you believe is true about us what you say is true about us we confess that it takes courage that we're scared but we want that lord we want that life we want to follow your calling we want to follow your lead we want you to to lead us to new places this morning, God, and we need your spirit to do it. Would you pour out your spirit and power because we need it so desperately to do these things that you're asking us to do, God. Oh, Jesus, you're so good to us. You call us, you redeem us, you reclaim us, and you invite us to partner with you in the picking up the pieces of this broken world and the putting of it back together, God. May all glory be unto your name.